Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Massachusetts has a plan to bring hydroelectric power down from Quebec through the state of Maine. So how do Maine residents feel about the proposal? Is it blood money? Could be considered that, in my opinion. Uh, you know, and I, I also think that it's an easy sellout. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll take a look at energy projects around the region, and we'll learn about PFAS, chemicals that are being found in water supplies around our region. I mean, it's unfortunate that we see these compounds in so many places in the country. The only positive part of that is that you got an awful lot of people working on it. Plus, you may have heard of horror author Stephen King's fictional town of Derry, but did you know it's based on his hometown? He takes local things, changes the names a little bit. We'll take you on a tour of Stephen King's Bangor. And we'll visit a small Massachusetts town that's the setting for a new series by the author. You know, you run into somebody in the grocery store and that's the first thing they say is, are you going to watch Castle Rock? It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. Drinking water supplies are under more scrutiny than ever, and we're going to start with a few stories about what's being done to protect them. We've been reporting on toxic PFAS chemicals that have been found in drinking water throughout our region. Although these widely used chemicals are ubiquitous, the state of New Hampshire has become a hotspot. And environmental reporter Annie Ropeek from NHPR has been covering this story for us. She joins us now. Annie, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. For listeners who don't know what PFAS is or are, explain PFAS. Yeah, so these are per- and polyfluoral alkyl substances. It's this huge class of thousands of industrial chemicals that they were really common until the early 2000s in American manufacturing. I think of it as anything that resists something, so stains or grease or fire or water, things like Teflon and Gore-Tex, also food wrappers, and also certain firefighting foams and other sort of industrial fluids. So they're made to be really persistent, which means that they don't biodegrade for a really long time. So they stay in the environment once they're there. So this is in a lot of products that we've used for a very long time. And so it's probably in an awful lot of places. Where are we finding it showing up in drinking water? Yeah, that's right. So it is sort of at a low ambient level almost everywhere. It's been found in animals in Antarctica. It's in everyone's blood at a certain level. But there are sort of hot spots of it around places like fire departments, fire training areas or military installations, places that used to use a lot of those fire foams and then kind of wash them off into the groundwater. They're also found around landfills where you just have all kinds of manufactured goods that are degrading over time and, and putting off these PFAS chemicals. And also certain factories can emit them into the air or water. So we know that it's bad for you. We're not exactly sure in what ways it's exactly bad for you, but both states and the federal government are trying to find ways to regulate these chemicals. What can you tell us about the the regulatory controls on PFAS right now? 
Yeah, that's right. So these were thought of as emerging contaminants for a long time, meaning the science around them was really new and scientific consensus was still kind of forming. I don't know that they're still emerging. They're pretty much in the public eye now, but we still aren't entirely sure, like you said, what they do to human health. We we do know that they have been linked to a lot of serious issues. So states and the federal government are taking a, a wide range of approaches to this. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, did get manufacturers to agree to stop using and importing PFAS, and they have this health advisory level that they may formalize or update and sort of codify in the next several years. And that's a guideline for states to use. So New Hampshire, uh, as well as more recently Massachusetts and Maine and Connecticut and Rhode Island all use the same EPA standard. Vermont is an outlier. It has a much lower standard than that one that is more common, which activists often point to to say that that higher level may not be protective of human health, and some federal studies would agree with that. So Vermont has been out in front of this issue quite a bit to react more aggressively to PFAS contamination issues and regulate a wider range of chemicals. So they're often looked to as kind of the model in the region. A lot of these chemicals are not in production anymore because of the health concerns. However, there are similar chemicals that are very close chemically to these PFAS elements that have been in production that are still in production. Meanwhile, we're finding these in groundwater all over the region. What exactly do we do about this, Annie? Is it just about not producing stuff with these PFAS chemicals in it anymore? Or are there ways to get these chemicals out of our ground and out of our water? Yeah, it's a huge question. I mean, that one of the big regional federal forums I was at on this issue recently, one state official called it like playing whack-a-mole with chemical regulation. You know, you sort of stamp down the PFAS issue, but then, like you say, the new versions of them that they call Gen X or, or next generation chemicals, those pop up and we know even less about those and the process starts over. So, you know, regulators are sort of trying to tackle this as they can. It's eating an elephant one bite at a time. And there are ways they can do that. So they can, you know, you can put a, a treatment system right on your tap or on your home well or on a town well to filter some of these chemicals out with certain processes. And then there's also this new process that they're actually piloting at Pease Air Force Base on our seacoast here in New Hampshire, which I got to see recently. It's all this cool cutting edge technology and they're cleaning up a whole aquifer. So they're going to try to do this all under Pease. Pease had a huge PFAS issue that emerged a couple of years ago and affected a lot of people who live there. And so now the military is trying to clean up their entire drinking water supply permanently so that the PFAS would be completely gone taken out of the water and disposed of safely off-site. It's going to take years and years and years for that to actually start to have an impact. They're just pumping the water out of the ground, cleaning it up and putting it back in over and over and over until the aquifer is clean. But it's promising and it's something that potentially could be used in other places, especially if this new kind of cool process that they're using really takes flight. And so it's called regenerative ion exchange resin. And I took a tour of the plant a couple weeks ago. Here's project manager Rob Singer showing off that resin. So this is the material that's in all these tanks. This is just a fine kind of styrofoam beads type material. So these simple little, it looks like white powder basically, it grabs the PFAS out of the water takes it sort of into another tank that at a certain point they'll dispose of it, and then the water goes back into the ground, and eventually years from now it could be clean. Is this something that's going to be useful more widely than just this one region? Is this something that can be used in towns and cities all over New England and all over the country? 
Yeah, maybe. So the military is hoping to use this aquifer cleaning approach at other PFAS hotspots around the country. Peas is a pilot project for them in a lot of ways. Now, that resin we heard, though, is really expensive. It's really new. And even those more common filters, like you might have heard of granular activated carbon or GAC, that's a common technique for filtering PFAS. Even those systems can run a couple thousand dollars just for your home. And so this is still sort of a new field, but things could change. I also talked to New Hampshire's Waste Management Director, Mike Wimsat, about this issue, and here's what he had to say. I mean, it's unfortunate that we see these compounds in so many places in the country. The only positive part of that is that you got an awful lot of people working on it, and it's going to make whatever technologies become available a lot cheaper because you're going to recognize those economies of scale, and it means that in the end, when somebody wants to buy a, a filter for their home, it's going to be cheaper. So we could eventually see states or municipalities or even just individuals trying out some of this technology, too. Uh, And more regulations adding up might mean that there is more ability to make polluters pay for some of that treatment, which is really important. Before I let you go, Annie, I want to ask, though, about the next piece of reporting you're doing on this issue. And you're doing a series on the Coakley landfill there in, in New Hampshire. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is another great example of the kind of controversy that can emerge when the science and regulations around an issue like this are still really in flux and in development. Coakley Landfill is on our seacoast. It's now a super fun site. And after the whole peas situation a couple of years ago, Coakley was tested for PFAS2, and they found it had high levels. And they appear now to be sort of leaching off-site. So they're in some surface waters around the landfill. And some people who have private wells that live nearby are starting to see very, very low levels of PFAS creeping into their water. So they want more cleanup. But officials say the site is not a public health risk yet. This whole process has been really slow and full of drama. So we're looking at kind of what's happened at the site so far and its history and then why neighbors are still so worried about this despite those government reassurances. Annie Ropeek covers the environment and energy for New Hampshire Public Radio and the New England News Collaborative. Thanks, as always, for joining us, Annie. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Cleaning these dangerous and persistent man-made chemicals out of groundwater can be difficult and expensive. But what happens when your well gets contaminated by a persistent and completely naturally occurring substance like salt? It's happening more frequently, especially near coastal areas, and the culprit is climate change. Hurricanes and other severe storms, which are becoming more frequent, can push seawater toward the shore, and that water, called storm surge, can flood streets and basements and get into drinking water wells. Rhode Island Public Radio's Avery Brookins reports. Can you give me a hand? See? There's our well. Andrew Baer slides the cap off his well in his front lawn. It's a cement cylinder about 12 feet deep, and unlike those pictures you may have seen in storybooks, it doesn't have a pail and rope to get the water out. Instead, there's a pump inside that runs on electricity. And it pumps the water from that well into our basement. It goes into a pressure tank and then comes up into our plumbing. Baer and his wife live in a small house on Green Hill Pond in Charlestown, Rhode Island, less than a mile from the ocean. And the town has no water system, so the bears rely on their well for drinking, bathing, doing dishes, everything. And so far, Bear says that's been working out for them. We have no um, bacteria or chloroform or really any you know, any issues with our water, and it tastes delicious. But relying on water from a well can be risky, since it pumps out groundwater. It's not an isolated, magic, underground lake, none of that. 
That's Thomas Boving. He's a geosciences professor at the University of Rhode Island. Boving says groundwater isn't just there. It comes from the rain. And when it rains, the water seeps into the ground and gets trapped. And Boving says that trapped water is fresh water and typically very safe to drink. But it can get contaminated if there are too many chemicals on the surface or even too much salt. Boving's colleague, Sony Pradnang, studies water quality. People have reported that they have had instances of where they had you know, salt, salty water in their well water immediately after um, these, you know, like uh, storm events. After Superstorm Sandy in 2012, several coastal wells in Charlestown were salted. That's the same town where Andrew Bear lives. And salted water is not like the added bonus of having salt on your pretzel. It can cause health problems like high blood pressure and heart attacks, just like a high-sodium diet. Too much salt in your well makes it unusable, and this can happen even if you're far from the ocean. Pradnang says in New York, storm surge during Hurricane Irene in 2011 was so strong that even wells miles inland were contaminated with salt. The effect was was seen in upstate, like in close to Albany, uh, which is pretty far. In Charlestown, there is no plan for protecting wells in a big storm because you can't physically prevent salt water from seeping into the ground. Professor Boving says that happens when a storm causes a lot of flooding, mixing salty ocean water and fresh water from ponds. If a freshwater system gets replaced by a saltwater system, then that same water, that saltwater, will now, instead of the freshwater, recharge the groundwater, bringing in the salt, causing a problem. And the problem could become more common as climate change causes stronger hurricanes. After a big storm, residents are now required to provide the town with well water samples to make sure it's still drinkable. And if it's not, they just have to drink bottled water until they can use their wells again. Boving and Professor Pradnang are working on a study to map out the potential impacts a big storm could have on coastal wells so residents can be aware of their risks. Boving says scientists aren't far enough into their research yet to know how severe the effects could be. But it's very likely that if it happens today, many people would be hurting because of their well being salted. Once the wells are contaminated, they can desalinate naturally, but it could take months before the water is fresh enough to drink again. And other alternatives for desalinating cost too much money. But an even bigger concern for homeowner Andrew Bear is rising sea levels, which could permanently salt his well. We can kind of live with a catastrophic event and anticipate it's going to get better. But if it becomes really the chronic or sort of chronic repercussions of climate change and sea level rise are definitely going to be a big problem with our fresh water. Fresh water floats on top of salt water because it's less dense. And if sea levels rise, the salt water underground does too, pushing more salt into wells and making it harder to access enough fresh water. And Charlestown Town Council President Virginia Lee says the town doesn't have a plan to prevent wells from becoming permanently salted. She says that's because homeowners are responsible for the quality of their own well water. And the state, the Department of Health, doesn't regulate private wells, only public wells. So people are are on their own. Resident Andrew Bear knows of a street nearby where people can't use their wells and rely regularly on trucks to bring them their water. It's not clear whether climate change is the cause of that, but it gives Bear an idea of how he might have to live one day if rising sea levels salt his well. And he wants to see a more proactive approach to addressing the issue. We know we're in deep let's put it that way, right? So we don't need more studies to figure that out. Town officials say they're aware of the problem and they're concerned about it. They recommend homeowners have their wells tested each year to make sure the water is still safe to drink. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Avery Brookins in Providence. 
Coming up, a closer look at the big switch to renewable energy around our region. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Let's dig back in on one of the biggest changes happening in New England right now, our move to renewable energy sources. Massachusetts is by far the biggest consumer of electricity in the region, and they want to bring hydroelectric power down from Quebec to meet their clean energy goals. But it's been a challenge. Plan A, known as Northern Pass, was slated to bring power down through New Hampshire. When that got killed by state regulators, they went to Plan B, a project by Maine's biggest utility, Central Maine Power, or CMP. Fred Bever covers energy for Maine Public Radio and the New England News Collaborative. Hi, Fred. Welcome back to Next. It's good to be here. Tell us what this would exactly look like as it goes through Maine, this transmission line that's cutting through the state. So it comes in from the northwestern corner of the state in a town called Beatty Township or municipality, and it snakes its way over to some existing transmission corridor and then down to Lewiston, Maine, and eventually down to tie-ups with the Massachusetts portion of the grid. Most of it is on existing transmission corridor where there are already electricity lines, but about 50 miles would go mostly in the western woods of Maine. CMP has secured rights of way for this entire corridor, so they've got the land in their control for this particular pathway. But when you say the western woods of Maine, it sounds like a wild place. What, what kind of natural resources would be threatened here? Well, it's a working forest for a great deal of it, depending on how you see wild. It is a, a big natural resource. The biggest concern that some state regulators are having right now is about impacts on wetlands and waterways. The part that's gotten the most public attention is an area called the Kennebec River Gorge. The Kennebec is a stream that goes the length of the state down to the sea. And up in northwestern Maine, in an area known as the Forks, because there's, there's a fork of two rivers there, the Dead River and the Kennebec River. In the Forks area, there's the Kennebec River Gorge, which is a fantastically beautiful, 100-foot-tall, steep-walled canyon, really. The river goes through it, and it's highly valued by recreational users, fishermen, rafters, kayakers. There's a big rafting community and, and a fairly strong rafting economy there. When CMP was putting all of these parcels together and knitting them together in the pathway, it was very diligent in going to every municipality that it could and securing the support of whatever the government was for that municipality. They did this pretty quietly before the project was even taken by Massachusetts. So I spoke to Sandy Thompson, who's on the local select board in the Forks, and she told me that at first she was against it, but then there was the property taxes that CMP was offering, and there was also in the works at that point a deal to help out the rafters, to come up with some sort of plan to compensate them for this place where the transmission lines would cross what is right now a 10-mile swath of gorge and then right below the gorge that's completely undeveloped. Here's what she said. If there's a mitigation involved where some of the monies can come back to the community and help, these rafting companies are in a tailspin. Their businesses are going downhill. There's, there's a lot of people against it and a lot of people for it. And that is definitely still the case. And, and I think the most vocal are those who are against it. I met a fellow named Greg Caruso. He's a Maine guide. He's also actually the ferryman 
on the only ferry crossing of the entire Appalachian Trail, which goes through just several miles down from this gorge and crosses the Kennebec River. He had some pretty strong feelings. Is it blood money? Could be considered that, in my opinion. Uh, you know, and I, I also think that it's an easy sellout. And here's one of the crux of the complaints that a lot of people have, which is that, well, this doesn't really do anything for Maine. Why should we compromise our own natural resources so people down in Massachusetts can pat themselves on the bat and say, oh, we got all this nice, clean energy? And, of course, there's a lot of questions about whether or not this really is green energy. Some opponents call projects like this greenwashing. Tell us more about what that means. Part of the rationale for this is that it helps Massachusetts achieve its greenhouse gas goals by reducing the amount of carbon dioxide that is created by the energy that Massachusetts uses. And that's true. This would be a big injection of non-polluting or low-polluting energy into the Massachusetts mix. The problem is that the contract doesn't say anything about where Hydro-Quebec gets that energy from, whether it's going to build new dams to create more new non-polluting energy Or is it going to take that energy from other consumers like the state of New York or other areas that are already taking this this clean energy and just transfer it over to Massachusetts? And so that's a lot of the argument that's going on in the regulatory bodies right now. The answer from CEP is, well, look, okay, so you take some clean energy away from New York State and you bring it over to Massachusetts. But New York State still has its own greenhouse gas goals. And so they're going to have to get that from somewhere. And there are a lot of states that have these greenhouse gas goals. And so we're just helping create demand, more demand for low-polluting energy. And Hydro-Quebec will eventually be building, and they've got a long-term plan to keep on building to provide more clean energy to users who are trying to use less carbon dioxide. And this won't hurt that at all. I want to loop back to something you said earlier, Fred, this idea that the people of Maine At least some of them are worried about what Maine's going to get out of it whenever you build an extension cord that comes from Canada down to Massachusetts so that they can meet their clean energy goals and they can get a more reliable, renewable energy. The people of Maine, quite rightly, are asking, what's in it for us? So what did you find out? Okay, so there's the basic pitch. New property taxes for all the communities that the line goes through. 1,700 construction jobs for the construction period, maybe four years. $73 million in wages for those workers. A total of $18 million in new property taxes. There's the money that they've offered now, or the value they've offered, to this group of rafters and trail advocates that could be worth as much as $22 million for new trails, for a recreation center in the Forks area, for marketing, for resource based tourism. So do Mainers feel a bit jealous of the deal that Massachusetts is getting here, Fred? Well, I think some do, particularly when they saw that as part of the deal, CMP was offering Massachusetts $50 million, over 40 years, but $50 million for low-income energy assistance programs for energy efficiency, maybe some help with bills, actually. Every state has these low-income programs, and this would be a $50 million shot in the arm over time. That was not a popular headline here in Maine. Barry Hobbins, who is the public advocate who's charged with protecting consumer interests, he was quite upset about it. It really is an insult that at least they haven't made an effort. So he's clearly very upset. I guess I'm wondering, Fred, as we finish, what is next for this project? What hurdles does it have to get over, and does it have to get more people like Barry Hobbins behind it for this project to come to fruition? 
So this is going to play out now before the regulatory bodies in Maine and the Public Utilities Commission here does have to look out for the best interests of consumers. And then in Massachusetts, the similar body there has to rule on the same question and with maybe a little bit more attention to price and to what it really would cost Massachusetts consumers. So there's a lot of regulatory hurdles ahead for CMP and for Hydro-Quebec. It'll be at least fall before we start seeing how the chips are really falling. Fred Bever covers energy and environment for us from Maine Public Radio. Fred, as always, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A pleasure, John. Our growing need for energy and our desire to make more of it renewable has set up some other tensions beyond just where to put big power lines. There's long been a dispute over how to account for so-called behind-the-meter solar, the kind you might put on your home or business to try to get off the grid. Energy analysts are seeing that, especially during heat waves like the one that's gripped New England for much of the summer, this rooftop solar can actually have a big impact on our energy needs. Sam Evans-Brown is the host of the Outside In podcast at New Hampshire Public Radio. He also really enjoys nerding out about solar power. Welcome back to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me. So you and I and Fred Bever, who we just heard from on the show, were all busy one night on, I guess, what we call energy Twitter. And we we were all following along this guy, Joe LaRusso. He's the Energy Efficiency and Distributed Resources Finance Manager at the city of Boston. And he was sharing this kind of complex and interesting Twitter rant that had to do with behind-the-meter solar. And it's happening right in the middle of this gigantic series of heat waves that we have here. Take us through a little bit about what Joe was was trying to tell us about BTM solar. So BTM solar is, of course, solar that's been installed at a site that is is operating behind the meter. So it's not the kind of thing that the grid operator can just call on and say, hey, you know, what's what's happening over on your solar array? It's stuff that, that they have no real visibility into. And what Joe was doing is he's pointing out something that solar advocates have been arguing that might have been theoretically true for some time, that during peak demand events, like really hot, sunny days, photovoltaic arrays are just cranking because that peak demand happens in the afternoon on sunny days and and that's when solar panels are operating. And so why do we care about that? We care because at these moments of peak demand, we rely on some of the dirtiest and most polluting power plants in our New England fleet that sit idle for like a huge chunk of the year and are incredibly expensive to run. So anything that reduces that peak demand on these hot days is very, very important for reducing pollution and carbon emissions and, of course, saving us a lot of money. And so Joe's tweets, what they did is they took a ISO New England press release about operations during this heat wave, and he broke out the numbers. And he pointed out that at the moment that we historically see peak demand, which was around 2 p.m., there were 2,000 megawatts of photovoltaic generation on the grid. And so at that moment, behind the meter solar, this the stuff that the grid has no real visibility into, was producing about 11% of New England's electric demand. So that's a lot of expensive and dirty peak generation that's being displaced. We also saw a uh, behind-the-meter solar power map that actually went town by town across our region. What exactly did that show us? Well, it shows us that policy matters, right? So so if here in New Hampshire, we have something called a renewable portfolio standard. It's a, it's an incentive regime for small renewable, well, small and large renewable energy uh, generators. And Massachusetts has one as well. And so if you compare New Hampshire and Massachusetts and look at this map, you see that there's very little solar in New Hampshire and Massachusetts has a ton. Well, if you dig into, if you dig into the policies, 
a renewable energy credit, which is the sort of unit, it's like a market-based unit of renewable characteristics of electricity that you can sell and get reimbursed for having solar on your roof. In New Hampshire versus Massachusetts, it's one-tenth of the price. So a Massachusetts incentive is 10 times as generous as the New Hampshire ones. And of course, so what you see is that there's a ton of solar in Massachusetts, almost 23 times as much in the Bay State as here in the Granite State. Uh, So really what you see is state policies have been what's driving the deployment of this solar. If behind-the-meter solar takes so much of a load off of the grid, it probably prevents uh, rolling blackouts, the problems that we've seen during other terrible times in our energy history. It's going to cost us less over time. I guess I'm wondering, Sam, why we're not seeing more states take the road that Massachusetts is taking, just try to put more BTM solar up there. Why aren't we seeing more of this in New Hampshire and other states? Well, so this has been the argument for years is that when you install solar behind the meter, you as a buyer of electricity, you've reduced your electric bill, but you're still getting benefits from the grid. And so this has been this anti-solar talking point for a very long time is that you're pushing the the cost of maintaining the grid onto non-solar customers. And the real energy nerds like Joe LaRusso have always been pointing out that solar does have this benefit of reducing peak summer demand. And that benefit accrues not just in reduced pollution, but in reduced cost to to the whole grid. So the question has always been, how much is this benefit worth? And are solar owners saving the grid as a whole more money than they're pushing off onto the rest of us? And all the studies that I've seen on this question have said that yes, especially in this early phase of solar deployment, behind the meter solar customers save us more money than they cost us. But here's where this gets really slippery, is that as we're getting more and more solar producing more and more electrons at the same time of day, you know, supply and demand, the market says that each of those incremental megawatts will be worth less. And so the benefit to the grid starts to decline as we get more solar. So eventually there will be this moment of reckoning where the value of intermittent solar will start to plummet and the solar industry and the grid as a whole will have to wrestle with that. When it comes to a lot of these issues, Sam, we're kind of toddlers. California is always in the lead on these issues. What can we learn from the state of California all the way on the other coast? In California, you see what happens when you have rampant growth of behind-the-meter solar but no real additional policies early on anyway, to deal with the the effects on the demand. And so there's this thing called the duck curve. So if you imagine a graph of solar demand through the course of a summer day in New England, what you see is this gradual rise from the morning when everyone first wakes up, peaking again traditionally around 2 p.m. when it's hottest and the air condition is really cranking, and then gradually falling again as temperatures fall and, and folks start to head to bed. But in California, there began to become these concerns that we're putting out so much solar, putting, on, putting electrons onto the grid in the middle of the day, that that long slow curve would get interrupted mid-morning and demand would begin to fall because of all the solar cranking out. And so demand slumps through the sunniest part of the day, but then as as the sun starts to go down, would start to rise very steeply in the afternoon as people head home from work. And the problem there is that there's this concern that power plants wouldn't be able to ramp up quickly enough to deal with this surge in demand. That was this concern in California that they they were the the sort of first across the wire installing a lot of behind the meter solar, and they were the first ones to to start to have to 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 wrestle with this and figure out what to do in order to keep the lights on. And so there are a lot of things that they're working on. You can increase energy storage, of course, that's the the golden child that usually gets mentioned. But there are also demand side measures. You can create incentives for people to shift their electric usage with impl- appliances like washing machines and dryers and hot water heaters towards 
low demand times, and that'll help to smooth out the duck curve. They say you can teach the duck to fly. <laughs> Sam Evans-Brown is our resident energy nerd. He also hosts the amazing Outside In podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. As always, Sam, great to talk with you. Thanks. That was super fun. You should also really check out Sam's award-winning podcast series, Powerline, to learn a lot more about that Canadian hydropower we talked about before. All right, so we've talked about hydropower and solar, but there's still just a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of energy we still get from nuclear power plants. But that is changing. The existing nuclear plants in the region are getting older or they've already been shut down. Vermont Yankee on the Connecticut River in the southern part of that state has moved the last of its spent nuclear fuel into huge steel and concrete casks where it'll be stored for decades. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission is watching the process to make sure it's safe. They say the project was completed ahead of schedule without any mishaps. Spokesman Neil Sheehan told VPR that it's now allowed Energy, the plant's owner, to shrink the size of the area where it needs to maintain high-level security. That's where the, the key focus is on that, that high-level nuclear waste that is stored in those casks. So this, this is consistent with what we've seen in other plants and really reflective of the change in security conditions at the facility. Sheehan says the nuclear waste may have to remain there, though, indefinitely because the country still doesn't have a long-term storage site for nuclear waste. Now, in a few years, what's happening at Vermont Yankee will also be happening at the only nuclear power plant in Massachusetts. And as WBUR's Bruce Gellerman tells us, the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station is up for sale at a bargain basement price. But there's a catch. Psst! Want to buy a used nuclear power plant? comes with 46 years worth of highly radioactive waste, but it's cheap. You could afford to buy it if you could demonstrate the technical expertise to decommission a nuclear power plant. That's Mike Toomey, a spokesman for Entergy, which owns and operates Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant. The utility plans to shut down the controversial reactor for good next June, but faced with the technically challenging job of cleaning up the contaminated site, Entergy decided to sell the plant. High security lock reactor stock, and giant barrels of nuclear waste. Toomey says the buyer is New Jersey-based Holtec International. Holtec will receive the plant and the assets, including the nuclear decommissioning trust and the liability to clean up the site. Pilgrim would be Holtec International's first nuclear plant decommissioning. It plans to team up with a Canadian company to get the job done. That company has experience. Their plans are ambitious. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission gives owners 60 years to decommission a site, returning it to the condition it was in before it went online. Holtec says it could finish the job in as few as eight years. To help with the cleanup cost, owners get access to a federal trust fund paid into by ratepayers. In Pilgrim's case, it's grown to a billion dollars. The Plymouth plant began operating in 1972. Today, the 1,500-acre site on Cape Cod Bay is home to all of the nuclear fuel that's ever been used in the reactor. 4,114 radioactive fuel assembly rods in all. Holtec plans to remove the rods from the reactor and the crowded storage pool and put them into huge concrete and steel casks. Originally, the federal government was to take those casks and permanently bury them in Yucca Mountain in Utah. But that plan was killed eight years ago by the Obama administration. Now Holtec wants to build an interim underground storage facility in New Mexico. One of the benefits of having Holtec involved in this project is the prospect that the fuel from Pilgrim could move out of Massachusetts sooner than any other alternative. 
Entergy's deal with Holtec calls for the entire Pilgrim site to be cleaned up by 2027. But Diane Turco, longtime opponent of the Pilgrim plant and head of Cape Downwinders, is dubious of the promise. It looks like Holtec is saying they will remove the waste within eight years. Um, and, you know, everybody wants that waste taken care of. It's a, it's a very dangerous situation. But the reality is Plymouth is a nuclear waste dump, and it will be there for a very long time. The Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant, also owned by Entergy, shut down four years ago and is still awaiting NRC approval to be sold to Northstar, another nuclear cleanup company. The NRC rates Pilgrim as the least safe nuclear plant in the nation. It's one step away from a federally mandated shutdown. And Diane Turco worries that even with a billion dollars, Holtec will run out of money before the cleanup is completed. That's a big question. And if they don't have the money, they're a limited liability corporation and they could file bankruptcy and walk away and leave us with the mess. But NRC spokesman Neil Sheehan says that won't happen. Our philosophy has always been that if at some point they were to declare bankruptcy or they run into some other financial duress, that we would still hold the company responsible for completing that project. The NRC must approve the sale of Pilgrim to Holtec and Holtec's plan to build an interim waste repository in New Mexico. If the sale is approved and Holtec is able to finish decommissioning Pilgrim for less than a billion dollars, it gets to keep the difference. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellerman. For more stories about the switch to renewable energy around the region, visit our Big Switch page at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a look at how Stephen King has shaped two towns in New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Best-selling New England author Stephen King has a brand new super creepy show on Hulu. Everyone's got a theory how it started about Castle Rock's original sin. Was it the Puritans who settled here? Or was it the mills where we grew rich by scraping God's earth until it bled? Castle Rock is set in Maine, but it was largely shot in the central Massachusetts town of Orange and in Devons at the region's largest film production studio. WBUR's Andrea Shea explains why the arrival of this high-profile series is seen as a game-changer for that state's film industry and for the town. You know, you run into somebody in the grocery store and that's the first thing they say is, are you gonna watch Castle Rock? On a driving tour, Brenda Anderson of the Orange Police Department points out locations crews altered to transform her hometown into the cursed fictional Castle Rock. She says it's been exciting for the small, tight-knit community. Stuff like this does not happen to the town of Orange. Anderson helped coordinate logistics as a star-studded cast and hundreds of behind-the-scenes crew members descended on Orange, population 7,600, about 80 miles outside Boston. No offense to you city people, but being out here, we're sort of forgotten. It's like, oh yeah, once you get past 495, then there's like this dead area, and then there's the Berkshires, and you know, stuff like that doesn't happen out here. 
A lot of scary stuff happened here during the 10-month Castle Rock shoot. The show's plot weaves together some of Stephen King's iconic storylines, characters, and settings. All in all, Anderson says things went smoothly during production, aside from a handful of traffic complaints. As ominous clouds gather and rain begins to pour, we head for shelter in Anderson's second workplace, Trailhead, an outdoor gear and general store she owns with her husband. It's on a depressed block in the town center. Pretty much us and Tech One are the only businesses on this strip. Like everything right, else there's is a closed. Lot of, lot of empty storefronts. Yeah, which made it easy for Castle Rock to do stuff for filming. Anderson says Castle Rock brought some economic sunshine to Orange. The producers rented homes for makeup and wardrobe. They also paid for new electrical wiring at the Universalist Church to fix up a rundown park and gave the town money for its upkeep. In a town like this, where budgets are always like this huge fight and always like there's never enough money to go around, the Parks Department would never get $10,000 to just upgrade. Never. So... That was a huge plus. According to the production, Castle Rock spent more than $750,000 on location fees to businesses, residents, and the town, which doesn't include money spent on supplies like lumber and paint from local retailers. The folks in Orange aren't the only people who've been benefiting from the streaming series' arrival. So, soundstage four. So it's uh, 18,000 square feet, and they all are 18,000 square feet. So it's 150 feet by 120 feet, 46 feet of elevation to the perms, which is where the technicians work to hang lights and backings and things of that nature. That's Gary Crossan, general manager at New England Studios in Devons. This full-service production complex houses four state-of-the-art sound stages like the one we're in. Daddy's Home 2 built a two-story chalet in here. But Castle Rock is the studio's first big-budget series. Crossan says it also marks a big step for the evolution of the state's film industry. Series television or series streaming these days is, uh, you know, a big deal for Massachusetts or any state that can attract that kind of a project because it's a much more long-term user than a feature film. To understand why this is seen as a milestone, we need to go back to 2006. That's when the state instituted the film tax credit to attract Hollywood to Massachusetts. Next came the growth in numbers of skilled local crew to work on incoming productions. Then infrastructure, meaning sound stages where productions could set up shop and film. The industry's growth coincided with the explosion of high-quality content from streaming providers like Netflix, and Hulu. This is all about 21st century jobs, just as much as Amazon and Biogen and other companies of that sort are 21st century jobs. All of these streaming content providers are also 21st century jobs, and we ought to be leading the league in that as well as in the other areas. There's a steady progression. It takes time. Bruce Mole, editor of Commonwealth Magazine, analyzed the impact of the more than 180 productions that have worked in Massachusetts since the 25% film tax credit came into play. The incentive's value has been controversial and questioned by many, including Mole. You know, if you had any industry and you said, whatever you spend, we're going to cover a quarter of the cost, I think you'd see growth over time. It's a very expensive way to boost a business. I just don't know in my head whether the trade-off is worth it. 
But Mole says if the incentive was reduced or eliminated, as it has been in some of the other states that have them, the Massachusetts industry would take a hit. This is a business that goes where the numbers work, and they're very good at creating Maine in Orange, Massachusetts. So they can also create Orange, Massachusetts in Maine, if the price is right, I imagine. I got a call from Shawshank. It's not a kid in a cage. A call from who? Back at their store in Orange, Brenda Anderson and her husband smile as they watch their hometown in the latest Castle Rock trailer. A woman jumps into their river. A drone shot swoops into town. A main character stops in front of the Universalist church. Anderson says the show has done much more than bring stars, jobs, and money to Orange. It made the town feel good about itself. It's a beautiful area. But this was something we could actually be proud of. Like, look at our town. Hollywood wanted us. And that's pretty cool. Anderson says if Castle Rock didn't come to town, they might have been forced to shutter their shop. Now she's stocking Castle Rock T-shirts and coffee. They're hoping Stephen King fans will come see Orange for themselves. And they're also hoping for a second season. There's a place where lovers go. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. And they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream or two to last you all through the years. Thanks to Stephen King's horror stories, Bangor, Maine is one of the most famous towns in the world, but many of his fans might not realize it. That's because it's known by another name in his books, Derry. The fictional town is a thinly disguised version of Bangor, where the author has lived for decades. Derry appears in many of King's stories, and it provides the major setting for the novel It. Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell took a tour of the real dairy a few years ago with a tour company exclusively devoted to showcasing Stephen King's Bangor. Hello. Oh, I'm right in the front. I take it this is my ride. This is your ride. <laughs> it's the second run of the day for SK Tours of Maine. The SK stands for Stephen King, though King is not affiliated oh, with the business. This family has come from Pontypridd, Wales. They're all big fans of King's work, says Tina Fox. It must be an incredible mind to come up with such stories. Uh, and I wanted to have a feel of where he was and lived. And the dark marine van is suitably styled for a tour into the macabre, with a Poe-style raven painted on the side. Toward the back, a deranged clown appears to burst through the side. It's a nod to one of King's most evil characters from the novel It, who would speak to children from the sewer. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. Even now, to this day, when I see the, the gap, on the sidewalk, between the road and the sidewalk, I think of it. I, to this day, I do that. Pennywise ruined clowns for a lot of people. That's Stu Tinker, who's been running the tours full-time for seven years after retiring from the book trade and selling his shop, Bet's Books. 
That bookstore still exists, but only online, and it's run from Connecticut now. Tinker has been following King's career for more than 40 years. Over the decades, he met and hosted the author for book signings and got to know his story. Eventually, his shop came to sell nothing but books by Stephen King and by his wife, Tabitha, also an author. King, through his descriptions of dairy, basically put Bangor on the world's map, says Tinker. It's amazing how many people come to Bangor, Maine because of Stephen King. I've had people from Kuwait, I've had people from China, people from Russia. Uh, I mean, it's from all over the world, and they're all brought to here because of Steve. He doesn't want to admit that he's a celebrity, but he certainly is. The tours take anywhere from two and a half to four hours. Stops include the graveyard, where some parts of the film Pet Cemetery were shot, the drugstore, where the King family not only shops in real life, but which also appears in the story Bag of Bones. Visitors see as many as 25 or 30 sites along the route. He takes local things, changes the names a little bit. Oriental Jade over here, <clears throat> this restaurant... In the book It, that became Jade of the Orient. That's where the protagonists reunite years later at a Chinese restaurant, and at the end of the meal, nasty things emerge from their fortune cookies. The tour guide offers an account of Stephen and Tabitha King's many charitable works and donations. There's a drive-by of King's big Victorian home. And you'll also hear about the author's real life, which was marked by years of struggle, poverty, and actual hunger as a fledgling writer. And of course, there's the actual manhole where King first imagined Pennywise the Clown lurking down below. They float, Georgie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float down! Tinker offers two tours each day all summer long. The tours fill up fast, he says, and he's had to turn people away. Business has become brisk enough to where he could expand beyond his 12-passenger van, but he says he wants to keep things small so everyone can talk together about the stories. In some ways, it's like a rolling book club. Now, nobody's mentioned... Uh the Dark Tower series. Anybody read it? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jennifer well, Mitchell in Derry. It's, it, it's a little bit of everything. It's a little fantasy. It's... Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.